Welcome to Insurance Uncovered, the first property casualty insurance podcast, bringing you perspective and insight on the top issues facing industry professionals. Insurance Uncovered is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Kathy Imus. Today, we're uncovering disaster reform. What members of NAMIC and the Build Strong Coalition are telling lawmakers to improve the country's response to damaging weather events. Plus, NCOIL adopts a new towing model. How these new reforms could bring positive change for insurers and their policyholders. And the mutual legacy. The president and CEO of Gen Re tells us how long-standing relationships within the insurance industry can benefit members. But first... As the country braces for what's expected to be another busier-than-average hurricane season, the U.S. House Committee on Transportation held a hearing last week to discuss better ways to address how the country responds and recovers from disasters. Build Strong Coalition spokesperson and former FEMA administrator David Paulison says he's seen firsthand how strong building codes work. As you're sitting here listening and... um you see that almost every agency that responds to disasters recognizes very clearly, very clearly, that pre-disaster mitigation works. Uh, it does save lives, it saves property. Uh, we saw very, after Hurricane Andrew, we made significant changes in our building code. Uh, you saw Hurricane Irma go through the keys. The, code, the houses that were built to the new code are still there. They're doing fine. Uh, some of them didn't even lose their roof tiles. Uh, they went across the top of my house in South Florida and no damage at all. If you look at last year's disaster spending, over $200 million billion spent on disasters, just taking 6% of that and applying to pre-disaster mitigation, can you imagine the impact this will have across this entire country as far as building resiliency in our system? The question that you asked, will, will it have an impact? Of course it would, and a very, very positive impact, and I think it's extremely important that we push this very hard to get it not only through here, but also through the Senate. Improving building codes along the coast isn't the only effort in place to encourage stronger pre-disaster mitigation. NAMIC worked with lawmakers to establish a federal cost-share program that was signed into law earlier this year as part of the Disaster Recovery Reform Act. Jimmy Grandy, NAMIC's Senior Vice President of Government Affairs, spoke with AM Best to address why the U.S. government's response has been inconsistent to this point. You know, I, I think for, for too long, as Chuck described, uh, the government used hope as a strategy. You know, hope the storm doesn't hit here, hope the storm doesn't land there. And we've been asking government at all levels for a number of years now to consider creating a national mitigation investment strategy. Um, and as we started to ask that question, I think many uh, elected officials uh, in, throughout Washington and around the country uh, we're almost embarrassed by the fact that we didn't have one and no one had thought that through. And so we've worked with Washington to try to start to shift some of their resources from post-disaster to pre-disaster. And in just uh, February of this year, the president signed into law uh, an exciting new provision that will change the cost share that the federal government will pay post-disaster um, and it will be worked out on a scale based on the resiliency and the mitigation that states and localities use. Because it's not always a state. It may just be a city. You know, when you look at a state the size of Texas, it may not be the whole state, but perhaps we could strengthen the codes along the coast there. And we could have 
places like Houston and Rockport that were devastated build using modern science and modern techniques to survive the storm and at least mitigate the amount of damage and the loss of life and property. The cost share program allows the president to increase the post-disaster relief by 10% based on a state's resiliency. NAMIC is working with FEMA as it issues guidance on how those resiliency metrics should be defined. The National Conference of Insurance Legislators has adopted model legislation that will provide much-needed reforms to state automobile towing laws. NAMIC members and other industry advocates have been working on the model with Indiana Representative Matt Lehman for over two years to establish some key reforms. Aaron Collins, NAMIC's Assistant Vice President of State Affairs, says this is a positive change for an issue that doesn't currently have a lot of regulation. The key things that happen from the insurance perspective are that um, maybe most importantly, the tower has to uh, provide a rate sheet uh, to the consumer, to the owner of the vehicle. Uh, and that provides you know, some knowledge to the consumer so there are no unexpected uh, charges. Uh, to be had. Uh, but then also, you know, it, it gives uh, the insurance industry the ability to uh, ascertain what the costs really are uh, and plan accordingly. So uh, I think that's probably the, one of the key pieces uh, from a documentation standpoint. It was really important for us to make sure uh, that there was a requirement for the tower to document uh, the vehicle itself and the damage to the vehicle. So there's a new requirement in there that they have to take photos or video before releasing the vehicle off of the tow truck when they get to the facility. Uh, so what that does is ensure that there's documentation of the status of the vehicle um, when the tower takes it. Uh, so that way we're able to ascertain if there's any additional damage or what the damage is. Um, and it's uh, it's good for the uh, insurance industry and for the consumer as well. The version of the towing model adopted by NCOIL is the result of a meeting hosted by NAMIC just before Memorial Day. The hope is that when states begin considering legislation for the 2019 session, this model will be used as a basis for those discussions. In other news, NAMIC's challenge to the Department of Housing and Urban Development's disparate impact rule has been put on hold once again by a federal court. NAMIC has been fighting the rule because it opens the door to a wave of litigation by establishing a right of action. That action would be against homeowners insurance companies if any underwriting factor produces a negative outcome for a federal protected class. A federal judge issued this day while HUD seeks public comment on what potential changes to the rule would be appropriate. NAMIC is preparing a response that will bolster our litigation efforts and provide a detailed roadmap for increased procedural protections should the rule survive our challenge. The mutual industry is known for its long history and track record of helping policyholders. In fact, many of NAMIC's member companies have been around for more than 100 years. Kara Regual has witnessed the impact of that legacy firsthand in her two years as president and CEO at Genri. In today's Unscripted, our Chuck Chamnus talks with Kara about why having a long-term mentality deepens relationships between mutual partners, allowing them to make stronger, better decisions. Well, I am so happy to be here with Kara Reguel, 
President and CEO of General Reinsurance Corporation, special partner to NAMIC, our only charter platinum uh, sponsor, a great supporter of our member company. So, Kara, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. So, I wanted to start with a Wayback Machine. Um, you went to college at Ursinus. You pronounced it correctly. I Good barely job, did. Uh, yes. Ursinus College in Pennsylvania. Yep. And you were not only a math major, which, of course, the world is going to be run by math majors if it's not already. I debate that with some of my liberal arts friends. <laughs> yeah, but well, I don't I'm one of them, you. so yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you agree. But uh, also a two-sport athlete. Yes. Lacrosse and field hockey. Yes. And the deeper research found that you were an All-American lacrosse player. So you simply do not, you don't communicate your background adequately. Because I know we've talked about some of these things before, and that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for that. I'm learning that some of those things that feel like a lifetime ago are uh, actually important in some ways and others. Because it allows you to connect with people, which at the end of the day, that's what we're in the business of doing. And if my, if my uh, reading of the... Uh, Division two records is correct. You may have been on a national championship team. So not quite correct in two ways. One, it was Division three for lacrosse and Division one for field hockey. Oh, I've, I've had the okay. wonderful success of losing a national championship when I was a freshman or a sophomore, sorry. And the seniors, uh, when I got to school there, had three rings in hand. So Wow. Um, so I have that. And that was in lacrosse? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Still. now the school's D3 for both. So at D1, we were playing with the big boys. We were, I went to a smaller art school, so yeah. we were playing against the Penn States and the Temples of the World. But they're good, fond memories, and I still love lacrosse. I absolutely love it. So we talk a lot in our industry about attracting the next generation of talent. You worked for a couple of uh, other companies before joining Berkshire, which we'll talk about, but... Uh, how did you get introduced to the insurance business? Yep, so this will make me feel like a dinosaur, but when I was at a liberal arts school that didn't have a good... Uh, outsourcing, uh, I forget the word for it, but for when they... Placement? Oh, yes, thank you. Um, I used the Yellow Pages. I really took the Yellow Pages and started calling 1-800 numbers for insurance companies to figure out who had actuaries in Philadelphia. Um, I'm happy to say I did get a job offer out of that, did not take it, nice. um, which was you know, a throwback for a time long ago. Um, but I, I ended up working at Cigna PNC as a summer intern. So I think internships are fabulous programs for for organizations that get the use of uh, testing someone out and the individual gets to test out the industry that they want to get into as well. So. I agree. I guess I don't even know. Does Genry have an internship program? We haven't. We don't have a formal one, but different departments will have interns here and there. And in some of that, it turns into job opportunities. Sometimes it doesn't. So Right, right. So then, um, I don't know, almost 20 years ago, you end up at Berkshire. You work with Ajit, mostly in reinsurance, underwriting, casualty, Whole variety of businesses. Yeah. I don't even know exactly what all of them are from the uh, uh, bio, but tell me about that. Yep. So I felt very lucky to be working next to Ajit. I think he's one of the legendary rainmakers in our industry, and just to be next to him for as long as I, I was, I learned a ton uh, along the way in lots of different things. So I learned very quickly to say yes to almost anything because there's always something along the journey that's valuable. And I certainly got that through good times and tough times and some tears, but uh, a lot of uh, education uh, that I enjoyed along that way, and also selling a lot of reinsurance and insurance. So experiences range from municipal bond insurance to workers' comp insurance to lost portfolio transfers, all kinds of stuff. And that was the beauty of being in that shop. Well, you knew I was going to get to this because when I introduced you to the NAMIC board a couple of years ago, shortly after you came to Gen Re, which was in May of 2016, yeah, yeah. you moved from Ajit's formal reinsurance world to the Genry Corporation that has a different kind of reinsurance space, Very become different. CEO. 
Um, and at that point, you were called, and I worked this into my introduction to our board. I was very happy about it. I'm, I'm even happier I'm to be able blushing. to broadcast about, uh, <laughs> you know, so he called you uh, his secret weapon. Uh, he said, you are zero maintenance, a true renaissance woman in the insurance and reinsurance industry. So I'd say you came in with a pretty good amount of confidence from your uh, boss about how things would go at Gen Re. I feel a lot of pressure for that as well. <laughs> yeah, well, so, and then the other part that was in there was he expected that it would be a 90-day review of the business. And I remember, you know, kind of walking through that with you. I remember a lot of questions you asked. Uh, I came out to Stanford and worked with you all about asking questions about our segment of the market. So uh, how's it been? It's been, it's been a journey, um, for sure. And so I just passed my two-year anniversary. Um, my hair is a little grayer. Uh, my hips are a little curvier, I will say. But I've been a road warrior, really trying to get to know uh, clients that we have and opportunities that we can have with prospects as well. And just deepening those relationships. I want the partners that we have to really understand me, understand Genry, where we're going. And, and I feel I'm at my best when I'm doing that on a one-on-one environment. So um, I think that... We've made great progress. I'm excited about uh, where Genry is at. More importantly, I'm really passionate about us deepening those relationships with the, with the mutual companies. I think it's a great, uh, long-lasting brand and investment that Genry has had for a long time, and I just want to continue that and do more. So we are, we are trying to find ways all the time to keep that uh, not only going, but make it better. So I'm excited. And I didn't really have a lot of experience with mutual companies before I joined Generate. Yeah, so. I think I've seen you kind of climb the learning curve, <laughs> learning more about these companies, our members, the history. I mean, I know yeah. that uh, I learned 20 years ago from a member company that at the time was talking about their 50-year relationship, which I think is now past 70 or 75. Yep, and, we're and, over 80 with one client. Yeah, so... What uh, what makes the mutuals again from your industry vantage point? Uh, what makes them special, or uh, what makes it a oh. challenge to do business with, or what makes them need what Genry offers? Yep. So there's there's lots of angles to answer that. So I'll touch on a couple um, that come to mind. One is the consistency and stability, which everyone can take as pluses and minuses, is a fabulous quality um, as a partner. So it's that long term mentality that Genry has as well. So some of our relationships last the way they are because there's bumps and bruises in any relationship, whether it's personal or professional, and learning to navigate that is important. And I think the mutual companies as a group, and there's always exceptions, but tend to have a very long-term view of the world, and I think that makes us a good partner. Um, they don't have the same kinds of pressures, different pressures, same kind of pressures that some of the publicly traded companies do. They certainly don't need to be worried about quarterly earnings. Mm -hmm. So I think that just allows them to make stronger, better decisions. Um, due to the size of some of the companies being smaller, there certainly are some large ones as well. For the count of companies that are smaller, I think Genry has expertise that can really help. And some of them really value that. Others, we kind of have that conversation of how do we bottle it? How do we put it in a bottle and help someone understand it before they enter into a relationship with us? Mm -hmm. But I just think there's things that we have the ability as the company, the size that we are with our balance sheet and investment in resources, is able to provide and, and share that with our partners. And I think the mutual group is specifically um, in a good place for us to be able to add value to them. And that's really what we try to do at the end of the day. That's great. So we're here at NAMIX Management Conference in uh, sunny Coronado, California, at the Hotel Del Coronado. It's very happy to be here. Uh, it's a it's great event, record attendance. We're at about 400 uh, NAMIC members, another two or 300 guests. Uh, this morning we heard Bob Hartwig, uh, professor in South Carolina, University of South Carolina, talking about insurance trends and the stats. And, and um, one of the things he, 
he showed, and you were probably there to see it, and if you weren't, you know it because you've lived it, but reinsurance pricing, and he looked at, like the peak was after the 0405 hurricane yeah. years, and you've seen it kind of, um, you know, drift down from there. Um, what's the state of the reinsurance market today? Yes, I would say it is abundant, uh, or there's abundance of capital that's there right now, which in the normal supply demand dynamic, prices are suppressed, I'd say, over long-term uh, the long-term values that should be there to earn the return on the capital for the risk that you take, right? So if we can debate what a fair return means, but I'd say most executives in the industry um, feel it's uncomfortable at this point in time. And part of that is from traditional reinsurers building their balance sheets, as there's been very light cats in the last 10 years, as well as alternative capital in lots of different ways that comes in and flows in. But there's much more efficiency of that flowing into the marketplace today. So specifically on the property side, uh, you can really feel it over there. And on the casualty side, the traditional reinsurers, as I said, are abundant as well. So mm-hmm. it's a tough time to feel special um, mm-hmm. if you're relying only on your balance sheet. Um, and because of the fact that – sorry, I keep going. Well, I was just going to say relying only on your balance sheet, but it helps to have you know the strongest balance sheet there is. Correct. So where I was going with that, because of the lack of cats the financial strength kind of importance at the end of the day, we are we – are, um, committing to a promise to pay, effectively, based on the contract terms, all that kind of good stuff. But you know, someone hands your money, and you hand them a piece of paper, and someday that's going to be worth something. Mm-hmm. So that balance sheet does matter, and I think that kind of gets lost in the noise today to a certain extent because there just hasn't been a lot of financial stress. So assume there are some events that cause that stress, that becomes more visible. It's there. It's just whether it's more visible or more valued in that way. Right. Um, you know, you mentioned alternative capital, and I knew it would come up. Um, I wonder if that name will change just to other types of capital. It's still what we call it. Uh, but I also wonder if, you know, for a while people talked about, well, a few big events. I mean, they're obviously large pools of money, pensions, life insurance, comes from around the globe, and it ends up, you know, in a reinsurance market through a variety of means. But um, it used to be that people thought, of, well, once they get the sting of a major cat or a few or a heavy season, then that capital might not be as comfortable being committed to our industry, to our market. Uh, I wonder now if um, rates might be, you know, interest rates and the the change we're seeing with the Fed's behavior and return to a more normal environment where clearly some of the behavior by the alternative capital has been around just seeking return wherever they can find it. And one area was in a non-correlated, weather-related, often, you know, reinsurance market. So it's a long way leading up to... Do you think you know the rates will change the appetite? Do you think um, there might be a change around the corner in terms of the commitment of this uh, alternative capital to our industry? Yeah, so the capital moves in and out depending upon what returns they can get and the competitive pressures that they feel. So it's a wonderfully a, efficient market. Yes, right? yes. Um, so from a short term, you know, sudden accidental event, I'll call it, and if. If Irma, last year was a series of smaller or medium-sized losses. If you had one big a whopper, like $100 billion event, where the losses flowed through the tower to some uh, deals that are priced in a way that there are one in 100 or even one in 250 events, what would that have been in the marketplace? So getting a large single event is very different than getting a frequency of smaller or medium-sized events. So there's a test of a very large sudden axle event that maybe an investor doesn't understand or understanding that you're reloading capital that way could change behavior. It might not at all. So that test I haven't seen completely yet. At the same time, it's that what is my other use of my money? So if there's a way that I can earn a higher return by doing something else, 
then that might cause capital to flow into a different place. So higher interest rates could create higher returns that someone perceives as less risk than what we do today. So I assume in, in a rational environment, people will behave rationally and they will move their money to places that they think they can get that. And how you get there in a world that we live in where what does a 1 in 250 event look like? You need 250 years to figure that out. There's judgment along the way. Right. And sometimes I think we do get as a... Um, industry a little model dependent and stop thinking about the parameters that's in those models so that gets tested when the event happens that you didn't expect um so i think i think those one of those two ways could change that in the meantime there certainly is a plenty of capital now and i don't think that's changing tomorrow it might change in the future as some of the casualty uh prior development that i think is coming for our industry rolls in that could have changed some of the behavior of some of the traditional reinsurers as well but it's hard to know what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, it's the nature of the business. Yeah, right, which makes it exciting and fun, right? That's right. And stressful. So um, what about InsureTech? Are you following anything particularly interesting that you see there? We all read the stories. Again, part of the presentation this morning, Bob talked a little bit about InsureTech and how his, his stats on investment were interesting and then um, his um, riff about the hype around InsureTech right. and that most of it, you know, will not be disruptive to our industry, but will be, you know, tools that our companies use and, and uh, that help them over time, yeah. help their policyholders. So the two areas that I pay the most attention to, I think, will be the most impactful. One is on distribution and one is on efficiency. So I think there's a tremendous amount of insure tech development, which has been happening. It's changed the way that it happens today, but that helps insurance companies be more efficient. So whether it's RPA products with, um, or it's, it's uh finding new ways to do things offshore. There's just efficiencies that we're gaining, and InsureTech accelerates that for us. And I think there's, there's even an added efficiency to having third parties build some of that. And if you can have a technology in-house that connects to that, you can take advantage of some of that innovation that happens outside of an insurance company or outside of your traditional partners. The other, as I starting with, was distribution. So I think distribution is always an interesting one. I think there's lots of people that value um, that relationship, that independent agent that can change um, there certainly are direct writers in the auto space. Homeowners is starting to bubble up a little bit, but not material. So I think that will move slowly. That's just my own personal opinion. Mm -hmm. And companies have to figure out if they have time to react. Are they going to be a fast follower? Um, do you pursue alternative distributions? But lots of different customers like to buy different ways. And um, that diversity of experiences is how you can grow potentially as well. But I truly believe that the independent agent distribution will be here for quite a while, certainly through my career. Um, how much big a piece of it it is, I'm not really clear about. I can't predict that far out, but mm -hmm. there's value there. They provide value, and their customers appreciate that. Mm -hmm. So last question, and I started with uh, college background uh, deliberately because I want to finish up where, um, you know, what advice might you offer to people, young people, millennials um, that are interested in our industry? Yeah. What uh, Besides the yellow pages, the tried and true yeah, yeah. method of finding a job, what, uh, I wouldn't give what that might you today. suggest? So um, there's a couple and things. And why should they look into our industry? Yeah, I, I, I'm very, I feel very grateful. My parents are teachers. Um, I didn't have a lot of corporate background or anyone really pushing me. There wasn't a community that recommended that to me. I, didn't, I loved math. I didn't know what to do with it. Someone said be an actuary. I didn't know what my alternatives were other to be a teacher. So I kind of felt like I fell into it. I'm so grateful for that. I think it's a wonderfully stable industry. Back in the 08 financial crisis, a lot of the living in the New York area, friends I had that were on Wall Street, the incomes changed a lot, up jobs changed a lot, and we were kind of chugging along in a really, what I thought was a stable way. So mm -hmm. I've, 
um, had opportunities that I never dreamed would be possible for me with where I've been for the last 25 years. I'm lucky. Um, but I also recognize that this is a great place to be. There's lots of opportunities. People have assets. They need insurance. Now, there might be different jobs of how we you know, acquire that insurance or build that insurance, but I, I think it's a great opportunity. I do think quantitative skills matter. I've definitely seen in my career that's been one of the things that has helped me accelerate my opportunities. So I highly recommend that people learn that analytical skill, get access to that. You can do it in different ways. I went to a liberal arts school with a math degree, so it doesn't need to be that you're only in a technical environment. But the thing that I would love to recommend to, to 20 pluses coming out of, out of school today is um, it's one thing to want feedback for that age bracket when it's positive all the time. So kind of that trophy generation mentality. But the real skill to learning and engaging and evolving is actually wanting feedback that you're going to learn to make you better. And that's not always the easiest thing to hear. And I hope that that crew really takes that seriously and can listen and learn because they, they have no bounds to what they can accomplish with getting the right uh, inputs, let's put it that way. So I would highly recommend that they do all they can to get not just the positive you know, tap on the shoulder and keep going, but also getting that, how can I be better? Well, that's a great place to end. Kara, thank you so much for thank being you. part of our podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Chuck. Our pleasure. Thanks. On the next Unscripted, Chuck talks with Tim Coppenhaver, Executive Vice President of Loudoun Mutual Insurance, about the benefits that resulted from his recent three-week sabbatical. Tim visited 18 Nature Conservancy preserves and says he came back to work with a greater focus and commitment to his job. Tim will tell us the most important things to consider when planning a sabbatical for yourself. And finally, registration is now open for the second annual Future of Auto Summit. This year, the event will be held at the University of Michigan's Transportation Research Institute and M-City Test Facility. Attendees will get to see automated vehicles out on the roads and learn about new product developments and regulatory updates in this ever-changing field. Space for this two-day event is limited, so register now at NAMIC.org. And that's a wrap for us today. Don't forget to tune in to our next episode of Insurance Uncovered on August 8th. I'm Kathy Imus. Thanks for listening.